Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Dear listeners, today we have a juicy, controversial novel for you, Wuthering Heights. Ooh, it's an oldie, but it's also chock full of maybe scandalous things and exciting, spicy characters. And some people love it and some people hate it. Well, I first discovered Wuthering Heights through the 1970 movie. I had actually not read it. I was 13. And for my birthday party, my mother took a bunch of us girls to, well, we had a, I remember this well, we had an ice cream sundae bar where we all got ice cream and made, put our toppings on, which new and original at the time. So it was very exciting to have this. And so my friends and I all had that and lunch. And then my mother took us to a movie. And in, you know, in those days, you paid your fee to get into the movie and you went in and you could go in at any point during the movie. And the movies, it was like a grindhouse. The movies just ran back to back to back to back. And it was just the same movie that just kept running. So we went in and I'd never heard of Wuthering Heights. My mother chose this film probably because the rating was pretty good it wasn't too racy and it was romantic or whatever so my mother chose it anyway and we went to see it and we were just gobsmacked we were oh my god after the movie we call i called my mother says please let us stay so we could watch it again so we watched it twice in a row and it was it was amazing and after that then of course i read the book and Every time I could find Wuthering Heights anywhere, the movie, I would watch it. So my family got the TV guide. This was back before you had any internet, any anything. TV guide was the TV Bible. And every week when that came, I I always would read it cover to cover and look at all the shows to see who was guest starring on the different shows because they would have the schedule of the show and then they would tell you like a one sentence synopsis or if it was the Merv Griffin show, they would say who his guests were going to be and that kind of thing. So I would read back to back to see if um, Wuthering Heights was showing at any time. And if it showed at one in the morning when I was supposed to be in bed, I would sneak down into the living room and turn the TV on really low and I would sit next to the TV and I would watch Wuthering Heights. So I ended up seeing it several times uh, before it was even possible to uh, get it on, well, I should say get it on VHS and then DVD. But then I didn't watch it after I was probably a teenager till last week. So it'd been decades since I'd seen it. And I was a little bit nervous because it was such a thrill ride when I first saw it. It's the version that stars Timothy Dalton, who, as Heathcliff, who ended up being a James Bond for two of the movies and uh, uh, the rest of the actors I don't think anybody really has ever heard of unless you watch a lot of British TV shows or movies. Ian Ogilvie is Edgar Linton and Anna Calder Massey was Kathy and I don't know the names of anybody else in it but uh, it holds up beautifully and I highly recommend it as probably I have to say Dalton I think is the best Heathcliff I've seen and I have seen a lot of Wuthering Heights as you'll see in the show notes I've seen four or five different versions and I think I even wrote in there originally that Tom Hardy was the best Heathcliff he's a very 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 good Heathcliff but he hews closer to the book so if you want absolute authenticity though he wears a horrible wig (laughs) a horrible horrible wig in this show his acting is so good he does overcome the wig But Timothy Dalton, A, is hotter, way, 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 way hotter, hotter. super hot Heathcliff. He also infuses into his performance 
some humanity. He isn't just the monster. He isn't just the wild man. He's a human being underneath that. And so you see what's going on inside him that makes him be so cruel and so forth. And I think that that creates certainly a more romantic Heathcliff, a more relatable Heathcliff. And therefore, I think he's the best Heathcliff. I think Period. that's a fair assessment. Period. So Zoe, who is the best Heathcliff? Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Am I going to say Tom Harding? Am I going to say Tom Harding? I don't know. Which name? Hardy. Which name? Hardy. Hardy. Oof. Get them confused. They both got T's in them. I don't look anything alike. And of course, they're decades apart in age. Timothy Dalton now being 73 or 74. As I said to mom, I have hundreds of real life people's names memorized who like come into my work every day and stuff. I just don't have, even have any room for actors' names. They're not real people. Like they're the only I don't real have any people. Capacity. <laughs> and I can't remember any real people's names. So there we go. Uh, anyway, so that was my introduction to the book was through the movie, and I loved the book with the passion of a thousand suns. I read it several times. Well, several beat being three probably and I then Zoe and I read it again for this podcast well I read it again you read it for the first time and I have to say as when we get into the discussion I certainly have a completely different perspective on the book than I did when I first read it as a as a teen it was really interesting yeah to first get your like memory of it or like being like oh I loved it so exciting and everything and to read it and uh, hear your opinion first and then t- to hear your opinion after you reread it because it did change a lot. And it also changed my perspective on the book, honestly. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. And then you're like, and now this is what I'm seeing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked it up because, I don't know, it felt like it was time. And uh, we were also looking for new topics for the podcast. It took me quite a while to get into. I kept like rereading the first page over and over and over again. Two years ago, I was reading at the cafe and I fell asleep and couldn't get into it. And then finally, I made it past the first two pages. And then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm wild and free just reading this book. It's fine. Um, the language really isn't that difficult once you get used to it and get past the first page. And it's not one of those Pride and Prejudice books, which, I mean, I think are accessibly written and they're very excellent, um, but but they're a lot subtler because the entire plot occurrences hinge on characters doing little small things and saying things, to, like they're much more subtle. And in this book, the actions are very direct and the um, dynamics are direct and pretty explicit and everything. So I found it like might be easier to follow than the Pride and Prejudice style. Well, Wuthering Heights is a lot more like eating a Szechuan meal. And Pride and Prejudice, I mean, that is like a tasty treat. That is like a sweet little (laughs) frosted cake of deliciousness. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. Yeah, it's a a high tea. Yeah, it's, it's, you you can eat uh, Pride and Prejudice more frequently and with more enjoyment, I think, than than eating Wuthering Heights. But Wuthering Heights is memorable and it will sear itself into your brain. (laughs) Agreed. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, that's our our history with it. And it was written, Wuthering Heights, by Emily Bronte, which is such a great name. Emily was born in 1818, and she was the fifth child of six children. And her parents had a really romantic genesis to their relationship. And I think that it becomes sort of the seed to their entire lives, which were very much romantic. 
And when I say romantic, and I want to be very clear about this, I'm not talking about like romance novels, the kind of uh, meaning that romantic has become today in the vernacular, which is all very swoony and love and hearts and flowers and all this. I mean like romantic in the romantic movement, where that movement was taking on the supernatural and alchemy and myth and everything was the biggest, the boldest, the most extreme, and very much flirted with with death. Beautiful, tragic deaths were at the heart of the Romantic movement, usually because you loved, and you loved too much, you loved too passionately, that love would tear a person apart. Not the romance today where love will complete your life and make everything... It's very sweet. And and you'll have a happy ending. Right. So the a very searing kind of experience with the romantics. Wuthering Heights through Emily Bronte, to my mind, is the quintessential romantic novel. I can see that. And it has it has a gothic aesthetic to it, but it is very I mean, as I understand it, capital R romantic has a lot to do with just intensity, you know, in romantic poetry. It's still a lot about nature well, sometimes, but it's about how intensely you look at something. And th- But that intensity is a result of transcendence. Romance with a capital R is about spiritual transcendence. It's about metaphysics. It's about throwing out the enlightenment principles of reason and being measured and thinking things out and acting upon that. It's about acting from what they consider your true soul. It's about getting into the spirit and the soul and living on the metaphysical plane. It's transcending the actual physical, as we see in this novel happens, which is why they loved ghosts and the gothic and myth. And and when I'm speaking of myth, I'm not speaking so much of the myth mythology we think of immediately, which is the Greek and Romans, per se. It's really more, uh, since this movement was so centered around Britain. It's the British and Irish kind of mythology of the gnomes and the fairies and the pixies mm. and the the sprites and the spirits that do um, scary, harmful things and that kind of thing, or ghosts that will haunt you. Uh, so that's the kind of mythology mm. when I say that that I'm talking about. Anyway, the parents of Emily Bronte, one was Patrick Bronte, and he was a, I, I'm not sure exactly, I'm not Church of England, so I don't know what they call him. I don't know if he was a curate when they first met, or he was already a reverend, or I don't know, but he was poor. He was a man of the cloth who was very poor, very learned, very intellectual. His wife-to-be, Maria Bramwell, was beautiful, intelligent, and she came from a well-to-do family. And they met, they fell deeply in love in the purest romantic sense. Their souls were meant to be together. They were soulmates. And what happened is, is her family didn't approve. They cut her off. I mean, this is so stereotypical story they cut her off when they got married she came with no dowry no money he didn't care because he figured she was a jewel above price married her and then they made do with their pittance of an income and they ended up having six children that's rough it was a rough very very rough financial thing but it's very interesting because again in romantic literature that poverty has a nobility. And the people who love, in spite of the poverty, quote unquote, don't notice the poverty. They certainly did notice it. They had to really deal with it. But it didn't taint their relationship or the relationship of the bond of the family, which was very intense. Emily then came along in 1818. So she was the fifth of the six children, if I had said that already. She was followed by Anne Bronte, who is another novelist that you may may or may not know. Right above her in the pecking order was her brother, Bramwell Bronte. 
And then above him was Charlotte Bronte. And of course, we all know Charlotte from Jane Eyre, which is, to my mind, one of the three best novels ever written. Hmm. Right? Amazing. A pinnacle. A pinnacle. Absolutely. And she was she was uh, three years older than Emily. And then above Charlotte were two sisters, uh, Maria and Elizabeth. They had the six kids. And right after, shortly after Anne was born, within, um, I think it's about a year and a half, the mother, one day, falls to the floor, screaming in pain, bleeding, and from her uh, from her vagina, and takes to bed. She lingers for f- several months, and they try to get the doctor, and they try to get her healed, but she dies. So when Emily was three, her mother had died in this very dramatic way. Who knows whether she really remembers the details of it, but it sounds like it was so traumatic that I wouldn't be surprised if it impacted her greatly. Yeah, that does sound traumatic. I mean, even if... And it's such a, they lived in such an isolated place and everything. They were all pretty close to it. Yeah, right. Exactly. They, they lived in this curacy or the, the parsonage or whatever they call it, uh, out on the moors. Hmm. So they actually lived out on the uh, kind of a Wuthering Heightsy kind of place and that they're out on the moors. It was real windy and it was rough environment um, in terms of the wind and the sparseness of the trees and so forth. And they were close to a town, but even though they could get the doctor to come, medicine was terrible at the time. And so the given wisdom has always been that the mother died of uterine cancer. Hmm. And it's very interesting in this book, which is mentioned in our book notes, it's called In Search of Anne Bronte by Nick Holland. Nick Holland is a guy who actually works at the Brontes, is a, now a museum and tourist attraction. And he has a different take on her. He has, a, he has uh, found an expert that has a different take on what she died of. I guess the question is, is how could a woman who bore six healthy children very close together within a year and a half of each of them have uterine cancer because cancer is slow growing and it's a long process. So it would have been affecting her much earlier. That was what they said. So here's another, I'm going to read from this book, another theory about how she died or why she died. And the uh, medical expert is Professor Philip Rhodes. He is was a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of London, St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School. So he's a guy, you know, he's a real guy. In his opinion, it is very unlikely that a woman would die of uterine cancer after giving birth healthily six times, including one birth just a year and a half earlier. That would have been Anne Bronte. It is also highly unusual for this cancer to occur in women under the age of 40, and Maria was 38 at the time of her death. Professor Rhodes diagnosed the cause of death as chronic pelvic sepsis with anemia, resulting in extreme pain and blood poisoning that would lead to the fatal cardiac arrest. The cause of this deadly infection was poor antenatal care after the birth of Anne, at the time when gynecological knowledge was very limited. Well, that sounds, I mean... Sounds very reasonable. Yeah, I can't come down on, you know, but with any authority on anything, but that sounds, makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So anyway, she dies, and, and Patrick never remarries. What happens is her sister, known to the children as Aunt Branwell, comes and uh, lives with them, and she came initially just to kind of help out the family, and she ended up living there the rest of her life and taking care of the family and sort yeah. of being kind of a, a mother to them. And then the next, this family, tragedy abounds. Yeah. So the next tragedy is that Patrick, loving his daughters and wanting them to excel intellectually, also being very poor and knowing that his daughters certainly will have to 
fend for themselves. Yeah, and not, they'll have to work. Won't yeah. find wealthy husbands or anything. Yeah, because they, they don't have any dowry. They might. They might find an okay husband. And but... they're not even freaking meeting anybody out on the moor. Yeah, really. Like, they, come they, on. <laughs> there's nobody, really. Uh, at one point, he does get a curate and uh, uh, who ends up falling in love with Anne. Uh-huh. And then, but Charlotte likes him. And then she's really pissed off. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, they had, they had a whole thing going on there. And then what happens is he dies oh, before Anne can marry him. That sounds exactly like the novels that they write. Well, exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so anyway, he sends the two, Maria and Elizabeth, the two eldest daughters, to a boarding school because, again, there's no school right there after he had been educating them for quite a while. Apparently, it wasn't a great place. The girls who were there were falling ill right and left. This is where they didn't have good sanitation and the water supply was bad, so on and so forth. And then I guess Charlotte went too, and Charlotte also became ill and the two older daughters died like very close like within a couple months of each other and then charlotte got really sick and patrick bronte heard about this the thing is is they could only correspond via letter it's the only way you could communicate and nobody was really telling him what was going on because they didn't want to worry him or didn't want to reveal and that Mm. something bad was happening and he finds out about charlotte so he goes and he gets charlotte and he brings her home so the two daughters died while they were there at school? Well, one died there, and the other one, I think they brought her home, and she died there. And people who are Bronte scholars just know I generally read the story. I may not be getting the details exactly right, and I respect it if you're irritated, but <laughs> this it really isn't a biography. I'm really just trying to give kind of a picture of the kinds of life that Emily had and the kinds of things that were happening to show uh, why she wrote what she wrote, why she took the tack she took. The absolute isolation, the loneliness, there really was no one around except their own servants. Yeah, and, and these their death own after death after death. Like, yes. th- didn't her sisters die very soon after her mother died too? Let's see, the mother died in 1820, right? Yes, the mother died in 1820, and then it says at age six, Emily went with her sisters to school briefly um, in 1824, and that's the year uh, that the two sisters died, died, so just four years later. Well, actually, one... um, the elder sister, one uh, Elizabeth died in 1824, and Maria died in 1825. Well, okay. not, to, you know, not that it really matters that much. She so, had tuberculosis, I think. Yeah, a lot of them got tuberculosis. That was a big thing. And the in this again in this book, In Search of Anne Bronte, which is, it's it's pretty readable. It's a little bit dry, but pretty readable because of this Neil Nick Holland. He really loves his subject. You can tell he really is really mm-hmm. into it. Um, but he does a. a a review of the death uh, rate of the peer, of the area they were living in, which was Haworth. He did a review of the health issues and the unhealthiness of the atmosphere there. Noted that the death rate was like four times as high there as it was in the rest of the country. Yeah. And people were dying. I mean, that's why they were dying right and left is because the uh, sanitation there was so bad. The water was so polluted and filthy. According to Wikipedia, there was a runoff from the church graveyard. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah, he says that in the book, too. Yeah, the graveyard was so packed with bodies, you know, bodies Mm -hmm. on top of bodies, and that the water ran through there, and the bacteria was just pouring into the water table and the water supply for the town as well as for the Brontes. So people were just, the life expectancy was horrible. Dang. And all of the Brontes died very, very young, except for Patrick. 
He lingered on. Wow. Yeah, he, he hung on. So essentially, um, Emily was very, very young, three, four, five, when all of these deaths were occurring, plus being in that isolated place, plus... They had servants who were from that area. Uh, there's a servant, Nellie, in the book. Well, Nellie, they had a Nellie, mm. essentially, who nurtured them in many ways. Aunt Bramwell being somewhat strict, somewhat religious, sounded like the servants there were people that they could get some warmth TLC. And... But they also loved to tell them, and they loved hearing these horror stories and these ghost stories and these and if you can imagine being in a place where there's no artificial light it's very dark when it's dark i mean people like us who live in the city i don't really even know what it's like for it to be really dark yeah you know and uh, no conveniences and the wind is howling and you're on the moors and then somebody's telling you about ghosts and uh, and sprites and fairies and all of these entities that are that are living around you it really fires the imagination and it really did fire their imaginations too but hearing it and believing it so much when you were young it got into them it really got into them and you can see this infused through throughout Wuthering Heights you can see it in Jane Eyre as well but it's more tempered in Jane Eyre and so from, from then on, um, there was more there were more attempts at schooling and so forth. And they did send Emily away for a little bit to go to school. And she got so sick. And really what Charlotte said is that the problem was is she was yearning for the Moors. And she did not want to be away from home. And she was just becoming deathly ill because she eating was... Not And just becoming ill, just becoming bedridden. And probably she was very, very depressed, I would think, as that. well. So she got sent back. She didn't get the same external education that Anne and Charlotte ended up getting. And Bramwell got to some extent, too. We'll talk about him a little bit more. So Emily, she liked to stay at home. That's where she wanted to be. She didn't care if she met any other people. She didn't care. She did, was not into people at all. <laughs> she was the extreme introvert of the family. She was. <laughs> she And she loved the Moors. Hmm. And she loved her sisters. And that was it for her. She was happy. And you see, you'll see that again reflected in this book. And we'll point that out for you guys. Then what kind of went down as the women, well, the girls grew into women. So now they're they're essentially kind of grown up. They're like around 20-ish in that range. Their brother ended up becoming an alcoholic and a drug addict. Oh. Big time. And yeah. a gambler. Uh-huh. And so he went really into decline. There was one period where Anne was trying to help. Anne was really the most functional, one of the most functional ones, I think, of the entire family. She went out and she held a job as a, as a governess for years before she was able to publish her book. And then died right after. But anyway, her two books, I should say. Anyway, she um, worked as a governess. And so there was a son in this particular family. And she recommended her brother, stupidly in my opinion, for the job as his tutor. It's to come and to teach him the boys things, I guess. So he comes and he seems to be doing pretty well. And the problem with Branwell is he was the hope of the family because he was the only boy. So he's just praised to the skies. He's just spoiled. He's just coddled. And he's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And he wants to be an artist. So he does all the drawing and everyone's, oh, you're so brilliant, Branwell. Oh, we love you so much. But if you look at his paintings, he's not a very good artist at all. <laughs> so he goes out and he tries to do portraiture and paintings and so forth he's just he's not making a go of it because he's not very good in my opinion he's not very good and if you go online and look for there's a painting he did of the three sisters and him and it's called the pillar painting or something or column painting you look at that and you go I wouldn't recognize these people if I ever saw them and then what happened why it's called the pillar painting is he was in one place and he didn't like how he painted himself so he just painted over it so it looks like there's a big column there <laughs> 
Yeah, I've seen that picture. Yeah. It's their faces are a little wonky and it's really I mean, he's like a million times better artist than we are, for example. Well, oh, absolutely. But by yeah. no means is he going to be invited to the court to And nobody's you know. going to people aren't going to really pay him or right. or if they would, it'd be because he went in the really far reaches of the countryside and somebody he could make a few coins out of doing mm. the painting. But because of the way he I think the way he was built up, he never came to face the reality of what he could and could not do, how to apply himself. Maybe he didn't apply himself enough. I mean, I, I don't know. But as he grew into manhood, he sounds like he had terrible depression and low self-esteem and was self-medicating with this stuff and it was making him very ill. So anyway, he was feeling better when he had this tutoring job, apparently. He had more self-esteem. He was doing work. He was getting paid. And then he ends up having an affair with the wife of the house. Oop. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he's like into the, the Byronic passion, the uh, the great passion for her, thinking that she's going to like leave her husband and come with him. He's got nothing, right? And, right. and they're like got an estate and all this yeah. stuff. So he ends up getting kicked out and he goes home. And for the wife, and it sounds like she's very beautiful and very charming. She's 15, 20 years older than him, whatever. And he just kept writing to her and longing for her. And she's like, dude, leave me alone. <laughs> this family is just so intense and everybody else is like, whoa. <laughs> well, and also she never intended to leave her husband yeah. for some ne'er-do-well alcoholic guy, right? Right. So he comes back. Then he ends up getting worse. And he gets worse and worse. And it really is as though he's trying to kill himself with the dream. I mean, it's just terrible. Mm. And it's horrible for his sisters. And he contracts debts. And, of course, his sisters are just totally enabling him because that's what you're supposed to do if you're a good sister in those days right and then he ends up dying now he doesn't die of tuberculosis apparently he must have died of some sort of alcohol related you know no one knows for sure but it sure sounds like it so that happens to him and then the father he's living on he outlives all everybody all of his children yeah <laughs> but yeah. he does uh he does get cataracts so cataracts start to um, growing his eyes and he's going blind he ends up having cataract surgery which means they scrape the cataract off your eyeball and they didn't have anything to give him for the pain other than alcohol or, or laudanum and morphine or that kind of stuff so i'm sure he took that but that's got had to have been just horrific but it worked okay and he could see so that right. that was good so one good thing happens <laughs> and so uh so that's basically the drama of her life and that plays into her book because you'll see from what we just told you parallels to these characters in her yeah, book. Yeah, just hearing about it, I'm like, oh, it's Hindley, that character. That's Hindley. Oh, that's Hindley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll we'll be more specific later. Now, the other the other bit that is crucial to Emily Bronte as an author is that from the very very beginning, from the time they could first read and write, or even probably before, they were telling stories. They would make up stories. They had no one else to play with but themselves. So they created their own worlds. They created their characters, and one of the most important things that happened to them is their father uh, gave them a set of little soldiers. They they would make these little tin soldiers, or maybe they were wooden soldiers that would come in sets. It was very popular at the time, and they each adopted one soldier to be like their soldier, and this soldier would have a name and a character, and they would make up stories about their adventures, and that began in the very beginning, and then they began writing books of these things, and they would write these teeny tiny little, almost like you had to have a magnifying glass to be able to see them, these teeny tiny little books with teeny tiny little script in it <laughs> and they would you know probably do all kinds of things that kids do uh, making little 
furniture or whatever. When I'm just thinking about when I was a kid, you know, making buildings, creating things for their characters to, to live among out of the... Playing D&D out on the moors. Yeah, exactly, uh, with the heather and the stones and the, the, you know, all that stuff. And that was hugely important because that's how really how they crafted it. And at first, Branwell was really part of that, but then he ended up being separated from them. And so that that's crucial. So we're going along. This family is poor as church mice could be and they're struggling every day with money and so the daughters are going how can we take agency here and make money take care of our family when they are gentlewomen of England so they can't nor would you really want to go and beat laundry or be a scullery maid or anything like that. They're educated. So the idea is to become governesses at first. Well, maybe not at first, but to become governesses. And so Anne is able to do it. And everybody treated her like a baby and poo-poo her. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah, so she went out and she was the most successful one. And they just seemed to, especially Charlotte, seemed to feel like, well, oh, that's cute. Very patronizing, right? Hmm. Emily, totally impossible. No way that woman could be a governess, right? She did go uh, and travel other than the the school incident. She did travel with Charlotte one point and went to Belgium with her hmm. on a trip for a month. And that seemed to all go okay. But it was, you know, it was probably because it was a defined period and she knew when she was coming home and so that was fine. And then Charlotte, I think Charlotte did governessing for a while and that didn't go real well. She couldn't quite hang on to that. She hated it so much. Okay. And so then their next plan was, okay, we'll write. We'll be writers. We'll make money writing. So they gathered their poems together, and they tried to publish a volume of poems. And at this point, very interestingly, they had to pay to have the poems published. They used male names, although at the time, there were a lot of female writers. Mm -hmm. But I think it was more they wanted to stay incognito because they were gentlewomen, they didn't want any publicity. Women weren't supposed to be in the public eye who were gentlewomen. So you didn't want anyone to be noticing you for anything. I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they published these books under uh, this po- poetry as a collection of all their poetry as Acton. And Ellis Bell. Ellis and Courier. Currer, not Courier. I always put that extra I in there. Currer Bell. So they use their own initials and... They, I think they sold, I don't, I don't remember how many copies they sold, but something like 10, maybe <laughs> six copies. And so they ended up having all of these books that they had printed and paid for worthless for them. Now, you can now get a pretty penny so for it. Yeah. But I have to say, I, I understand it because though they are, I, I would say Charlotte and Emily are great writers. And Anne is certainly a very competent writer and wrote some very interesting stuff. The poetry is, it's very Victorian. And I think people at the time could have liked it. But it's not special in any way. And just having read, perused a little bit of it too, I think, I'm sure they were like, oh, this is the stuff we've been working on forever. This is what we have and everything. But it's, uh, you know, it's their magical land that they made up, Gondol or Gondrel. And so a lot of it's like in this like magic land that they made up with their characters. So there's a quality of like insideness to mm-hmm. it that's not very interesting or attractive to somebody who's outside of it. They continued to write poetry most of their life. So even the poetry that doesn't relate to the magical land is... I think the kind of the issue is that maybe that their themes are so classic, all the things that they address in their books too, like death and this intense capital R romance, love, uh, loss, things like that, don't translate very well to poetry because, I don't know, it's just, it's too, it's too thematic and too... General. Yeah, exactly. So I think the the thing that makes the books work is that they tie them down to... Specific people, yeah. ...story and personality. 
I totally agree with yeah. that. I totally agree with that. We are going to be doing a podcast in the future about poetry. <laughs> and I will state my views on this. <laughs> but I will definitely say that this poetry is not poetry I would ever want to read. So it didn't work. And that's what I think. I, there are a lot of apologists who think that was that they were great poetry writers as well, I think. At least I, I've noticed a few. But I think those are just the kind of the diehard lovers. Yeah. You know? And that anything they do touches their heart. So then the next step then is to write their novels. And they they had some trouble getting their novels published once they wrote them. And they did have to pay to write them. And I'm not going to go into all the details about how they were going to package them and blah, blah, blah. But let's just say this, that Anne and Emily got their novels uh, accepted first Mm. and were preferred. And so Charlotte, who's very egotistical and really had a hard time because she always wanted to be the best. And just couldn't kind of stand it if she wasn't. Viet is the novel she wrote first. Was not, and it's not that great of a novel, so I can see why. Was not highly desirable. But anyway, so Wuthering Heights finally gets published in 1846. Seven. Seven. It is pretty successful. I am really shocked, though, because... I'm shocked that it was successful, too, at the time. But it was published under the male name, so that saved a lot. Because Anne Bronte published a novel and hers was about a woman who has a drunken husband shades of bramwell and he's so bad and she even hints at at physical abuse she runs away and at this time if you don't know a woman basically belonged to her husband it's called coverture she merged into his legal being so everything she owned everything she earned even if she left him and went and lived separately if she earned any money that was his money and so in the story the husband's taking everything and spending it on gambling and drink basically she could starve to death and the law would be on his side he could take everything so this woman runs away changes her name and she makes a living as a painter and she's earning money and she has a child and she's taking care of the child and earning money and the book deals with this social issue that was considered more transgressive and received more horrified reviews than did Wuthering Heights. Which has all that stuff in it explicitly, which is so funny. Well, they didn't have the thing about the woman leaving the man, see? Well, but... Um, and, and taking agency. Isabella leaves Heathcliff. Well, you're right. Yeah, so, so it point. does. Good but point. But it's not wrapped up in an economic issue. Right, that's true. Yeah, so... Right, exactly. <laughs> so she, uh, yeah, those st- that stuff happens in Wuthering Heights. It's just not as socially provocative, I guess, or it's not pointing to social injustice. Really. Some, somehow it was. And that's yeah. a good, I'd, I'd forgotten that. I hadn't yeah. connected that. But Wuthering Heights, that has implied incest and... Uh, Rape and physical abuse and lots of drunkenness and lots right. of gambling. Right, and people running around on moors. Yeah. And that was considered to be well, I mean, there were people who commented on it. I'm not saying sure, there weren't yeah. any, but it seemed like Anne's was much more maligned than Emily's. Very interesting. So anyway, they did finally get it published. And then in 1848, the year after Wuthering Heights got published, Emily dies. Probably of tuberculosis is the guess. She refused medical help, though. Who why would you want it? I mean, trusting the doctors. Yeah, they, they they don't do anything anyway. I mean, really. So she died, and Charlotte then had all her papers, and she burnt a lot of, and got rid of a lot of the writing that Emily had done after Wuthering Heights. So we don't know if she was working on another novel mm. or what, but... Does anyone it, speculate at the motivations? Was it more jealousy? Was it more, like, protectiveness? It could be either. But Emily had regrets about publishing the novel. Hmm. She was so private that she didn't want anybody to know anything about her or to see inside her or to see her work. So maybe that might have been it. Maybe there's, I don't know. But the novel itself, Wuthering Heights, is 
really a view into the interior life of Emily Bronte. It takes place on an isolated moor. Wuthering Heights is a, is a house that might be somewhat like the house that Emily lived in. There's a town several miles away that's the nearest town, a lot like Haworth. And there is a, a beautiful range house, a farm, a very nice farmhouse, I guess you might call it. Not, I wouldn't call it a mansion. I think it's just a very nice house. Not that, about three miles distant from Wuthering Heights. That's the nearest neighbor. So in this story, the Earnshaws initially is the family that live in Wuthering Heights. And the Lintons are the family that live at Thrust, it's going to be hard, I'm just going to call it the Grange, but Thrust Cross Grange. Thrust Cross, that's hard. It's not Thrush Cross? Yes, it is. (laughs) That's that's why I can't say it. Thrush Cross Grange. Grange. We're going to call it the Grange. It's very hard to say. Thrush Cross. It was easy to read, but. Yeah, it is. It's very easy to read. And then, then the Gimmerton is the town uh, that's nearby. And we never uh, go to Gimmerton. We stay only out on the moors in the environs of Wuthering Heights and the Grange. Right. Okay. It's a very, yeah, it's a very small scope of a book. I'm assuming that the people who are listening have read this book because we're going to be talking about everything in it and we will hold back nothing. So there will be spoilers galore. At the same time, we'll try to keep the context going, the explanation mm-hmm. going hopefully reaching the balance so we don't talk too much about the plot and being expositional. So basically it starts off with the family at Wuthering Heights. Well, actually it starts off with Mr. Lockwood. Maybe we should talk about the structure first. Yeah, the structure is quite interesting. And if you've only seen like a movie version or something, it'll probably, you'll have a very different perspective on it because the, the narrative layout of the book is kind of complicated and usually just gets cut out of the movies and yeah everything. there is there is one movie the old movie does have mr mm. lockwood so essentially it think of it this way in the center are the two protagonists and their families heathcliff and Catherine earnshaw okay that's they're the core they're quoted but they don't tell their own stories outside of that ringing around them is nelly who is the maid she witnesses what's happening and if she doesn't Somebody there has told her, so she gives you the hearsay of what went on where she when she wasn't present. And then outside of Nellie, the rim of Mr. Lockwood, who didn't see any of these events transpire. Origi- of yeah. the original events, anyway. He sees some of the later events, but none of the original events. He's never met Catherine Earnshaw. He comes after she's dead. And he is relating to you, for the most part, what Nellie tells him. Right. And he's a stranger from London. He's renting at the Grange. Okay, now not to blow your minds. So you've got this this three-circled thing. If you think of like a little, ex, what is it, excrescence coming off the side, there's another part, a little of the diagram, where Mr. Lockwood, he sees and meets and actually relates his direct experience of some of the other inhabitants of this place and what, what's happening at the end of the story. So he sees the end of the story himself. And he tells it to you himself. So it's a complicated narrative structure. It is, yeah. And I, we were trying to figure out why. Because at the center, you've got this passionate love to the death and beyond death of Catherine and Heathcliff. And that spans several decades. Well, barely several decades. Like a couple decades. <laughs> Catherine is, d- dies when she's 19. Yeah, okay, two decades. Okay, yeah, barely two decades. Because <laughs> she's about six when Heathcliff comes. Right. So at the center, right? They're at the center, and then and then at that center, also sort of radiating out from them, is the tragedy and the pain and the drama 
that comes from their relationship and how their relationship is torn asunder and then tries to come back together. And so that's all at the center. That's, that's the interesting part, that's frankly. That's the compelling <laughs> part, right. And then there, so why do we have these narrators within narrators telling us the story? There's a big time skip too where the, that addendum at the end is are mostly centered around the children of uh, the various parties. And it, it's, it feels very, yeah, it feels very cocooned. Well, I think the, the, the thing is, is at the time, this narr- narrative structure of a objective third-party narrator telling the story, it, it was very common. It was just a standard, it was a standard trope that they used. And I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's because you needed to have some, I think their idea was you need to have some sort of realism. Like, why is this story being told? I think it blew their mind to think they could just open a story and there would be this omniscient floating narrator who would just tell you what's going on. You needed to have a person who was writing something because novels often had started as epistolary works where somebody would write a letter to somebody else telling them the story and then they would write back and they would tell them their response or you would have the letters of the protagonists and be telling the story through them having interaction through letters. A la Frankenstein or... Yeah, there were a lot of books, not all of them, but there were a lot of books used that, or they would be writing in a diary, like in Jane Eyre. So Mr. Lockwood, he writes a bunch of this stuff down, but it's very loosey-goosey and it's not real consistent. But I thought that it was, uh, that it might have been because that's just the trope that she knows. The other thing is, this book is so flippin' intense and so dramatic and elemental that I don't think it could have been acceptable to be right there in contact with the reader. I think that the reader needed some sort of buffer against the power of it. When I was reading it, it seemed to me that if you took away, stripped away the narrators, this would be like Gone Girl. Because Gone Girl is a very intense book. And it's very, it's got a lot of the same kind of passion. And I don't mean love passion, I mean passion, passion. And... Uh, violence and abuse and all has got all that stuff but we can read it today because we have our own buffer because we understand the convention of the omniscient narrator and actually I'm wrong because Amy in that book the gone girl she's in the the beginning in the beginning she's the narrator after that it becomes directly one-on-one but in the beginning she's telling you she's left notes or it looks like a note suicide note or something or whatever explaining her motivations and what she did it's it's in gone girl as well but anyway but um when you said that though it did ring true to me because i don't know there's this you know the scene where heathcliff is smashing the window and he's like cutting his arm open and they're trying to get in there and the wife is like no i i don't think i can let him kill you morally and like just like all this stuff is happening like i think that would be pretty intense for a victorian reader yeah to just be like whoa i'm confronted with this rather than being like hold of something that has happened in the past something dark something yeah Yeah. and it's not it's not happening in in, there's no the immediacy is Mm -hmm. is blunted and i think that makes it would have made it easier to read as well so that's and i have not read any scholarly articles and i'm sure there are tons of things out there that's my take on it for what it's worth not to mention just all the stories that they grew up hearing and everything were always related by somebody else and so that's probably what feels really natural to them that's true the storytelling aspect yeah so one of the things that people really hate about Wuthering Heights have heard is they don't like the fact that really nobody in this book is 
really likable. At, well, at the end, there there are um, the children. There's uh, Kathy Linton, and there is. Well, should we go? Should we do the drum dramatis personae first? Yeah, I suppose so. I we assume you've read read it, but we probably should just for we'll lay it out for yeah. grounding. Okay, so we've talked about Heathcliff, who is an, a child of unknown origin, who's brought home by Kathy's father right. after going on a trip to the city. It's not explained. He just brings him home, and he loves him. And he's an and Heathcliff is like an intruder in the family, and they're like, why? And he loves him more than he loves his own son. And so there is a hint, and some movies take this up and some interpretations don't, that he was possibly the father's son. He's actually his son. He didn't just find him and take pity on him, but he actually was his son. His illegitimate child. Yeah. uh, The mother died, and so he brought him back. That's the hint, but the book doesn't go there, doesn't say anything about it. There's uh, the father, there's the mother, there's Heathcliff, who's been brought home, and then there are two other children. There's Hindley, who's the heir apparent and the son, and there's Catherine. And Catherine is the same age as Heathcliff, a little girl, and that's the, the core of the family. Then there is their maid, Nellie, we've mm-hmm. talked about, and their, I don't know what he is. The helping man. Yeah, the working, the, 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 the everything pain in else the ash, guy. cut him out, I hate him guy. Yeah, Joseph. Joseph. <laughs> he's hyper religious and grumbles about everything and essentially yeah yeah he's he yeah. refuses to do more things than he actually does i think but yeah exactly so that's one family and then there's the family at the grange where there's a, at that point there's a mother and father and their two children there's isabella and edgar edgar's about uh, he's a little bit older than Catherine. probably um i forget what they said but he's probably a couple of years older than her, and Isabella is the younger sister. And so those really are pretty much, until they start having children, the entire cast, cast of, characters. of characters there. So from the very, very outset, Kathy and Heathcliff, Catherine, I'll, I'll, call, I'll call Catherine Earnshaw Catherine, I'll try to remember to do that, uh, so that you can distinguish between her daughter Kathy, who comes later. So Catherine and Heathcliff are... Basically soulmates, mm-hmm. bonded. They run around together. They're wildlings together. They, they're not necessarily like perfect angels or anything. They love to like tease By and any play sense, pranks. No, and they're, they're <laughs> little fight ba- and they're tiny bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and Hindley hates Heathcliff with a, as much hatred as one could have for right. usurping his place. The mother dies uh, in the family and... So they're left with just a father. I believe father. she dies rather suddenly. Very, like she falls down quickly. screaming in the book or something like that. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just sudden, very sudden death. And then the father ends up dying as well when they're kind of teenagers, like 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. Well, so the father sends Henley to school. So Henley's gone for a long time and they're living in their paradise and, and everything and the father's getting sicker and sicker and then he dies and Henley comes back. To right. take over. Right. And then he just grinds Heathcliff down, takes away his books, basically degrades him. Essentially what happens is they end up meeting Edgar and Isabella through uh, a very famous scene where they're peering through the windows at night and Catherine gets bitten by the, the dogs they let loose. And so she and Edgar take up. And herein we start to get into the place in the book where it gets confusing emotionally and I think it's written confusingly. Yet the genius still shines through. And that is Catherine takes up with Edgar. And at first it seems clear that she wants to marry Edgar, get his money, and then help Heathcliff. What gets very confusing of the sexual politics of this whole thing, because 
It doesn't make any sense. What does she actually intend to do? Does she intend to have an affair with Heathcliff? Does she intend to run off with Heathcliff? What is the deal here? And I think it's very odd, too, about the way, not only her expectations, but uh, Edgar, he is aware that she has this bond with Heathcliff, but he still marries her, and then it's just very confusing. And part of it certainly is that she does love the Linton's lifestyle. Like, she gets to spend time in their house. They give her nice clothing. Because the people in this, and the characters, and especially Kathy and Heathcliff, are so primordial and so, mm-hmm. like, unadulterated. And they're supposed to be so intense because they're all about each other and they're consumed and all these things. But at the same time, they are characters who are supposed to be real people. And so I do think that other motivations sneak in. And so these other, you know, motivations are in there and part of her motivation is that a very realistic one of like I want to have a really nice life I want security and I love this lifestyle of getting to uh, have tea and like live in a nice house because her house is kind of degenerate and kind of you know even if they have or had some money it's like they're kind of poor at the same time and dirty and it's it's a complete contrast to her life and environment so I think it makes sense that she's on some level that like based on class interest Edgar makes so much more sense for her to marry but then it makes it confusing because she and Heathcliff are supposed to be consumed by each other right well there's also the thing is that she keeps saying different things she says she loves Edgar she says she loves Heathcliff she says she doesn't love Edgar she says she doesn't love Heath I mean she's just (laughs) like blah blah from from my point of view I think that one of the things that does make this difficult and one of the reasons it is hard to understand is that Emily Bronte never had a sexual partner. She didn't, probably never had sex. I'm sure she knew what it was because she lived in the country. I mean, they did keep Victorian women very cosseted and often they didn't know even what it was until they got married. But I don't think that's her her case that she knew what, she certainly knew what it was and probably whatever feelings she may have had herself. But I don't think that she understood anything about sex in relationships and what that meant. And I think that that's one of the things that makes their triangle very confusing because Catherine, even though at this point she's had sex with Edgar when she got married to him, it doesn't seem clear about what she's doing. Right. What's going on. So in, in the, a lot of the films, they try to work that out in some way, and each of them does it a little bit differently. Did they have sex? Did she and Heathcliff end up having sex? Didn't they? What's her relationship with Edgar? And so on and so forth. But the key thing, I think, as a reader, what you get is that Edgar is the enlightenment. Edgar is reason he's measured and he's the kind of guy that you know if i were gonna go out with somebody he'd be the one i'd want to go out with yeah i wouldn't want to go out with heathcliff heathcliff would like i mean he was pretty darn mean right i mean but she was okay <laughs> with it because she around and then like grab you and like yeah. maybe that could be exciting for like an afternoon but like <laughs> you can't really base the life off of that That's but but tough. kathy but the, and the point is that kathy could right that what that would have been you know they would have been great together in fact she probably should have gone off with him even if they didn't have any money because what happens is Heathcliff goes off after she's going to marry Edgar he comes back and he's rich okay I'm going to start in a way a new topic here and that is talking about Heathcliff and how he figures in the minds of generations of readers particularly women Mm. and gay men (laughs) is that Oh, I have something to add to the previous discussion, but we can come back. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you sure? Okay, well, what I was going to say was basically just like the sexual politics is where it gets confusing because 
as like a polyamorous person, I can understand why Kathy might be like, I'm in love with two people and I'm kind of confused about it because they're different kinds of love. But like, mm-hmm. that's not even a possibility or anything. That Well, well, the jealousy of mm-hmm. wouldn't be possible. And it's very interesting in the book that Edgar, of course, he's just, this is his wife. He owns mm-hmm. her. He, she belongs to him. And there would be no idea. It would be a stain on his honor. It would degrade him if she were going to be with somebody else. He, 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 mm-hmm. he, he couldn't even consider it. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And I think Kathy Kathy would have been fine having them both. Exactly. That's kind of where I'm like, uh, totally. I, that makes sense to me, though, like being like, I want both. But And what Heathcliff, even though Heathcliff was very, he really hated Edgar a lot and wanted to destroy him and do everything he could to destroy him. The thing about that is, at least he says in the book, that he would never want to deny her anything that would make her happy. So he hints that he would be okay with her being with Edgar as long as she could be with Heathcliff whenever she wanted to. That's what he says. And he does act according to that until it gets difficult and then he becomes like a tyrant. Well, it was pretty much became difficult because Edgar was making it difficult. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like he, he, even though he was there and he, Heathcliff was like a, a dark presence for everybody and everything, he was fine until Edgar started kicking him out and threatening him with the exactly, dogs yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So Cliff in the minds of generations. Yes, yes, yes. Because if you read the book carefully, is a serial abuser and he's really horrible. He's absolutely nothing. Yeah, he's good he, at all. Scum. <laughs> and and it, and of course, in the romantic vein, it's his passion. It's about his passion. It's about his soul bond with Kathy. There are those people who do not go with it. For them, they read that and they go, "I don't want to read about this horrible monster of a guy." But then there are those of us who read it, and I have to say, it's just the imagination that picks out certain characteristics and and falls in love with it. And what we do is we change him in the interface between us and the book. So he is the Heathcliff that we want him to be. And I see that, you know, it happens. And that's fine. And that's absolutely fine. Because that's what reading a book is. You know, it's an interplay between the author and the reader. And so when you've got, he's taller than everybody else. He's got squarer shoulders than everybody else. He's got the dark hair and the dark brooding brows and the black eye. His eyes will have the black fire in them. It's like yum, yum. <laughs> right? You're right. And, and yeah. he's smarter than everybody else. And he can go out and in three years he can make, you know, Heathcliff isn't that old either. He's like 20. Mm-hmm. And he goes off and he makes how many, how, however much money. And he comes back and he's a gentleman and he can read and speak well and he wears fine clothes. Only somebody who's, you know, he, maybe he did something illegal, but he must have been good at it. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's that competence. That, and that, that, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, and on top of that, he'd do whatever you wanted him to as long as you asked him right, if you're Catherine. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And that's <laughs> the thing is he's totally loyal to Catherine. So there's something to a woman that is just so delicious about, I mean, because he's, he's not a doormat. No. By any means. He will snap back. So so in a way, he will do whatever it is for Catherine out of his passion, not out of being a nice guy like a doormat, which is something that women don't like. We don't like the nice doormat. But he's doing it out of a powerful compulsion because they are linked. And so I'm going to read this one section of the book. This is the pivotal section of the entire book. And I think that uh, anybody who knows Wuthering Heights knows this section. Edgar Linton has asked Catherine to marry him. I think Catherine is like all of 15 on this, during this section, and she's accepted his proposal of marriage. At this point in the story, just to remind you, Heathcliff has been degraded 
to the nth degree by Hindley. And he's like just a stable boy out in the stable. And Catherine has been hanging out with the Lintons. And Heathcliff is very angry and jealous at this point because what he sees is that Catherine is no, has changed. They no longer have the ostensible bond anyway. She's not hanging out with him. They're not talking. They don't have the same intimacy that they used to have. So he is feeling a, a jealousy at this point and a hurt. And Catherine is being pretty mean to him and calling him dirty. And, and again, that doesn't, I don't quite understand that. Right. <laughs> but she's doing it. And she comes into the kitchen to tell Nellie about it and to sort of seek her approval because Nellie's sort of a mother substitute. And Heathcliff is hiding, well, not hiding, but he's hanging out, resting in a dark corner of the kitchen. And Kathy doesn't see him. Nellie doesn't say anything because we'll get into Nellie later. We are going to dish on Nellie <laughs> later. We're talking about her. But anyway. So Catherine comes in and she says, um, I accepted him, Nellie. Be quick and say whether I was wrong. So we go on and she, they talk, argue back and forth about that she's not loving Edgar for the right reasons. Finally, af- after they've argued for a while, Nellie says to her, All seems smooth and easy. Where is the obstacle? Here and here, replied Catherine, striking one hand on her forehead and the other on her breast. In whichever place the soul lies, in my soul and in my heart, I'm convinced I'm wrong. That's very strange. I cannot make it out. It's my secret, but if you will not mock me, I'll explain it. I can't do it distinctly, but I'll give you a feeling of how I feel. She seated herself by me again. If I were in heaven, Nellie, I should be extremely miserable. Because you're not fit to go there, I answered. All sinners would be miserable in heaven. But it is not for that. I dreamt once that I was there. I tell you, I won't hearken to your dreams, Miss Catherine. I'll go to bed, I interrupted. She laughed and held me down, for I made a motion to leave my chair. This is nothing, she cried. I was only going to say that heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth, and the angels were so angry they flung me out into the middle of the heath on top of Wuthering Heights, where I woke sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret, as well as the other. I have no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven. And if the wicked man in there had not brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him. And that, not because he's handsome, Nellie, but because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And Linton's is as different as moonbeams from lightning or frost from fire. And so what happens during the speech, when she's talking about how she can't marry Heathcliff for the degradation, Heathcliff hears this, and he leaves quietly and runs out while she is talking. And Nellie sees this and doesn't say anything. Fuck Nellie. <laughs> and there arises the misunderstanding that leaves Heathcliff to leave and her to marry Edgar. But I think that section... But uh, there's, more, my, there's, oh, there's, there's more. There's more. That okay. one part where after Catherine is, is informed that Heathcliff heard what she said, and she runs to find him, and Heathcliff is gone. She then says to Nellie, My miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn into a mighty stranger. I should not seem part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it. I'm well aware as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. 
So don't talk of our separation again. Ta-da. That says it all. That's the heart of the book. That's what we love. Yes. That's what speaks to the pounding romantic in each of our hearts. (laughs) Flinging ourselves upon the moors, the wind blowing through our hair. We don't really need to eat or drink or go to the bathroom. No. We just live in in the power (laughs) and the nature and the nature (laughs) and love and passion. That's what it's all about. And so that is the pivotal point in the book. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Great.